Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. As we begin the message this morning, I want to begin with the premise that we all need to feel significant, like we matter. And where does this significance come from? How can we get it, and how can we keep it? I was thinking about that this week as my Denver Nuggets won their first ever NBA championship after 47 years in existence. And it was so fun to watch them for me. It was fun to watch Nikola Jokic, their best player, really the best player in the NBA, the finals MVP. He averaged 30 points, 13 and a half rebounds, and nine and a half assists per game throughout all of the playoffs. I mean, we, could, we can talk a lot more about that later if you want. So. But he was interviewed immediately after the final game. And toward the end of that interview, he was asked this question. Now you are an NBA champion, Nicola. How does that feel? What was his answer? Was it, I've made it. Finally, all that hard work has paid off. I've gotten to the mountaintop. Finally, the world will see and respect what a great player I am and team we are. He said, it's good. It's good. The job is done. Now we can go home. He's made it clear over and over again that basketball is not the most important thing to him. It's not the thing that gives him ultimately significance. And and well, if significance isn't going to come from something like that, where does it come from? How can we get it and keep it? That's what we're going to jump into this morning in the next message in our sermon series that we're calling Just Like Us, Ordinary People Changing the World. This is a series where we're walking through one of the stories of one of the 12 apostles. And through that story, seeing their incredible humanity, their successes and failures, their joys and disappointments, their triumphs, their embarrassments, and in their stories, we will see our own stories. (laughs) We'll see that God uses ordinary people to change the world. And these 12 certainly did change the world. As they went out with the message of hope of Jesus Christ, and we actually find ourselves as the beneficiaries of that work. But the work itself didn't stop when those 12 Passed. Instead, that work was passed on to each generation, including us, if you're a follower of Jesus. And so you may feel inadequate, not up to the task. You may feel ordinary and insignificant, but you too have this profound and powerful calling on your life to change the world by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. And so today, we're going to look at the story of James, the son of Zebedee. And he is going to help us reflect on where real significance comes from. And so if you want, you can follow along as we read from Mark chapter 10. Let's listen together as God speaks into our lives this morning. 
Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, may you add your blessing to the reading, the proclamation, and the hearing, and the responding to your word. May you continue to shape us and move us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Throughout the Gospels, James is always shown with his brother. But I want to give you a little background, though, on who is James. I think it will help us really understand and appropriate the story we just heard. James is the oldest son of a man named Zebedee, and most scholars think that Zebedee was really a pretty big deal. I think that he had significant influence, that his reputation carried weight, especially among the religious leaders. He had a fishing operation. It wasn't just subsistence fishing, trying to put food on the table for the family. He had hired hands on his boat. This was a commercial operation. And so it likely led to some level of financial security, some comfort, success, and influence. And James, as the oldest son of Zebedee, would have been responsible for the family business, would have had authority over it also as the oldest son, would have received the greatest portion of the inheritance. In that day, actually, the oldest son received twice as much as everyone else in the inheritance. So he also was one of the three. Those three disciples, three out of those 12 apostles that were called into Jesus' inner circle, that was made up of Peter and James and John. And those three had this unique vantage point and opportunity to be with Jesus in more intimate relationship and setting, but also to witness some of the things that the rest of the 12 didn't get to see. For instance, at one point, Jesus was called to uh, the home of a man named Jairus whose daughter had died, and Peter, James, and John were there when Jesus performed a resurrection miracle and brought her back to life. They were also there on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, meaning 
where God revealed the fullness of Jesus' divinity to them. We're told that his clothes began to glow like lightning as the divinity of Jesus was shining through, and just these three were there to see it, to see his majesty and his holiness. So they had this unique opportunity to witness Jesus' power and also to understand Jesus' identity and then to be in closer relationship. By Jesus, he gives them the nickname, the Sons of Thunder, which gives us a little insight into their temperament, probably. They were zealous and boisterous, probably rambunctious. Certainly, we see them as a little aggressive. At one point in Luke chapter 9, we hear of a time where there was a village in the region of Samaria that refused to welcome Jesus as he was passing through to go to Jerusalem. And so James and John go to Jesus. So, hey, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy this city? Like, this is their knee-jerk reaction. Like, they've got bloodlust. They want vengeance. They're at least passionate and certainly zealous for what they believe in. And today, certainly, we can also see James is ambitious. James and John go to Jesus and say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that not like the most honest statement you can imagine? Like if we really reflect on our relationship with God, is that not what we really want to say to him? Even though maybe we know we're not supposed to. And perhaps why we tend to believe in the idea of our prayers that so often if we polish them up and make them sound good enough, if we use enough four and five and six syllable words, God will be impressed and he's got to respond to us then, right? Which is why always the pastors have to pray. But Jesus allows them to make this request. And that's remarkable in and of itself, but then he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't tell them to shut their mouth. He, he actually invites more. He says, okay, tell me, what do you want me to do for you? And i got to imagine that James is like, all right, he's actually listening. Maybe he's inclined to do for us what we want. And so they ask him, Jesus, when you come into your glory, will you let one of us be on your right and the other to be on your left? What they're they're imagining is the time when Jesus, who's the king, is going to establish his kingdom. They're imagining the throne room even where he'll have his throne, but then he'll have the 12 around him. And they're asking him, let one of us sit on your right hand and one on your left. In other words, one of us to sit in the seat of most significance, of power, of authority, of honor, and the other in the second most. You got to imagine as, as siblings, there was probably a little rivalry. Like they, they knew it was going to be one of them, of course. At least that's what they were assuming. And they were probably battling it out, having some conversations as to which one it was going to be. And Jesus just needed to settle the argument, right? And so they make this incredible, audacious request of Jesus. So why? Why do they do it? Why do they ask him? You know, we might just quickly say, oh man, they, just, they were just ambitious, but if we think about this a little further, think about the background that James is coming from. Maybe they're just used to getting their way. 
right, based on their family reputation, on their influence, and, and I think the reality is some of us walk through life this way, where it seems like doors just open, and if the door doesn't open automatically, you're able to pry it open. And when that happens consistently throughout life, it's easy to start to feel like this is how it always should be, right? It should always work out for me. And I know some can't relate to this at all because it doesn't seem like a door has opened in a long time. But James is the oldest son, the representative of a family of power, of influence, of means, and so the doors often open, and he might be leaning on that experience and expectation even as he approaches Jesus. And what's noteworthy to me about this is that he comes from a place of, of privilege, a position and a, a status in society of prominence, and yet it's not enough, is it? He wants more. He sees in Jesus the opportunity to grab hold of even more significance. If he can have that place of authority and honor, then maybe he'll really matter. He'll really be important because apparently he doesn't feel important enough now. Doesn't feel seen, doesn't feel significant, unsatisfied, wanting more. And Jesus responds to them saying, you don't know what you're asking. And he says this because immediately before what we read this morning, Jesus, for the third time, has told the twelve that he is on his way to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be turned over to the authorities where he will be mocked, he will be beaten, he will be spit upon, he will die and rise on the third day. So he's just told them this, and then James and John's immediate response is like, okay, that's cool, but when can we get on your right and your left in glory? Like a little bit of a disconnect here. Like kind of missed the point. Jesus is saying, you don't understand what you're asking. Can you really drink the cup that I'm drink, gonna drink from? Can you really be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And they just continue, sure we, sure we can. They're so confident that it's gonna work out for them. And they probably have some understanding that what Jesus is saying is that there's gonna be suffering. Because throughout the scripture, the image of the cup often has to do with the suffering that comes along with life. The reality that as humanity, we will toil, we will work, and that ultimately we will all die someday. The cup also in Isaiah in particular has to do with the cup of God's wrath, his anger, his just anger being poured out against all that is ungodly. The cup is definitely a metaphor for suffering. And as he asks, can you be baptized with the baptism I'll be baptized with? Can you, can you really be submerged in what I'm about to go through? Can you really be dipped in this kind of suffering? And they're like, yeah, we can. But can you see their logic? Because I think we use a similar logic when we face difficult times of suffering. We think, okay, I can endure suffering for a while if the gain at the other end seems worth it. I can endure pain, I can endure hardship now if the payoff is going to be big enough later. This is the entire premise of exercising, right? Sometimes we believe the payoff's going to be worth it. Sometimes we don't. 
But it's the same when we're considering education and are we going to work at our schooling. It's the same. Are we going to work hard at our job and additional training? It's the same when we consider, are we going to take on the medical treatment or continue the treatment that seems to be making things worse now with the promise that it's going to make it better later? That it'll be worth it. And James and John are saying, yes, we can endure this because we have a vision of what it's going to be like to be at your right and your left. It's going to be worth it. But they've misunderstood the gravity of the suffering, and they have definitely misunderstood Jesus' glory. Jesus says to them, you will drink the cup, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These are for those who they've been prepared for. What Jesus in that moment is doing, he's prophesying, he's foreshadowing, looking ahead to the time he will enter his glory. And when we think of glory, and I think when James and John were thinking of it, we think even still today about the victorious, the triumphant moments in life, right? Glory is the parade at the end of the NBA finals. But glory for Jesus is first and most clearly displayed in his suffering on the cross. Because in that moment on the cross, God's character is most fully revealed to us. In that moment on the cross, the weightiness of His majesty, His justice, His judgment against sin, and the weightiness of His love and His mercy and His forgiveness all come to bear and are seen most clearly on the cross as Jesus suffers. And so when they ask to be on his right and his left in glory, what they don't realize they are asking is to be on his right and his left as he is crucified on the cross, and those places are already reserved, prepared for two thieves who didn't really know Jesus and didn't walk with Jesus, one of whom seems to repent and plead for the mercy of God revealed in the glory of Jesus on the cross, the other of whom rejects the offer of mercy that is seen there. And Jesus tells James and John, I can't give you the right and the left when I come in glory, but you will indeed suffer. As a matter of fact, if you fast forward to Acts chapter 12, just the first two verses tell us this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That was it. That was the simple last mention of of James. It's actually the only time that James is seen without his brother. James was the first of the twelve to be martyred. He's the only one of the twelve to have his martyrdom captured in the Scripture. This was the moment of James's significance. Not in what he could gain, but in what he could give up for his Lord. When the other ten heard the audacious request that James and John had made, did you catch their reaction? I mean, they are angry. And I think they're angry... Because they didn't get there first. 
Right, they're angry because what if Jesus actually says yes to their request? They're angry because their opportunity to gain significance could have been taken away from them and given to someone else. But in this whole passage, Jesus is flipping the entire concept and idea of what it means to have significance. He, says, he gathers them all together now as they're arguing, and he says, hey, you know that those who are regarded as rulers among the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, so much of the world finds their significance and their importance in having power, in wielding authority, in ruling over people, in positions of success and prominence in society. But he says, not so for you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be slave of all. Slave? Really? That doesn't sound very much like sitting on a throne in a place of privilege, of comfort, of authority, wealth, and honor. Service is actually a pretty trendy idea in our culture right now. Corporations are giving employees days to go and and serve in the community. And, And that's good because good things are being done that are alleviating suffering for others. But Jesus is taking the notion of serving up a whole nother notch because it's not just go serve, it's be a slave of all. And when we think about the background that James has come from, and we think about serving, and when you come from that kind of background, it's tempting to see yourself as a servant that rides in on a white horse in all your goodness stooping low to help those poor folks in their need and rescuing them, if not for just a moment, with everything you have to offer. That's not the posture of a slave. It's not the posture of a slave at all. And it's really not serving the other. It's really using people to reinforce our own significance. Because if that's the way we serve and our motivation for serving, I'm not really serving to make you feel good and significant. I'm serving to make me feel good and significant. And slaves don't serve like that at all. Because when we serve like that, we will pick and choose the people that we will serve, the times and the places that we will serve. We will look at it and we will say, when it fits my schedule, then I'll serve. But right now I'm busy. Or when it looks the most impressive and I can feel the most significant. Or maybe when it's comfortable or it's clean and it's sterile and it's safe. Okay, then I'll serve. Does a slave have the choice to serve like that? No. A slave doesn't get to pick and choose. A slave does what they're told to do when they're told to do it. When we also think about serving like slaves, do slaves receive more praise and accolades or significance from serving in the ways that they're told to? (laughs) No. When they do what they're supposed to do, they didn't get rewarded extra. They weren't given more significance for their obedience, and yet some of us serve in that way with that motivation, maybe serving obediently, maybe even making incredible sacrifices. 
And I just want to say, if you're serving obediently, that's good, because if you're not serving, you're living in disobedience to Jesus. Because he's making it very clear, if you're his follower, you serve. But so often our obedience service still has an eye to an expectation about what we're going to gain and receive from our obedience. And maybe subconsciously we're thinking, man, this is going to finally make me accepted and loved by God, be blessed by Him. He'll care for me if I care for others. Or maybe we will finally have our significance. And Jesus is flipping the whole understanding of significance It doesn't come from attaining positions of power and security and prominence and authority. It doesn't come from wealth. It doesn't come from feeling great about ourselves or about what an incredible servant we are and how many people need you. It doesn't come from our perfect obedience even to serve. Significance comes from recognizing what Jesus said in the very last verse that even the Son of Man didn't come to to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, that's the cup and the baptism. That's what the cross was really all about. It was a ransom. Right, and we know what a ransom is. If you've ever read a book or seen a movie with a good kidnapping in it, right, there's always a ransom. That's the whole point. You gotta pay to get the person back. And what Jesus is saying is that you've been kidnapped by someone or something. It has power over you. It is holding you captive. You can't get rid of it or get out of it on your own, and you need someone to come and pay the price to get you free. And in this context of James's story, it's perhaps you've been captured by those things you believe will give you the significance that you desperately long for. You've been captured by it by that pursuit of the perfect family, by the pursuit of your reputation or your influence or your money or your power or your significance, what is it? What seems like it's going to give you that significance that you need? Because we do need to feel significant. Jesus' concern, though, is where we're going to pursue it. Because in pursuing it, we can become captive captive to being needed, captive to needing the approval or the affirmation from someone else in our life. If only, if only on this Father's Day, man, so many of us long to have the affirmation of a father. If only I will have this or that, then I will finally be important. I will finally be seen. I will finally matter. And the concern that Jesus has for us is that those things will never ultimately make us feel significant because they will always be fleeting. We will eventually lose them. Even those people who are with us and who are wonderful to us, someday we will lose them, and once again, we will find ourselves searching for significance. Winning one NBA title and needing to have another and another and another, if that's where our significance comes from. And Jesus is saying to us this morning, I wanna set you free from that captivity. I want to set you free and give you real significance that no one can take away, that you can never lose. How am I going to give it? I'm going to purchase your significance. I'm going to give my life as the payment for your ransom to set you free from that captivity. And when we experience that significance, when we realize that your significance really comes from the reality that the God of the universe sees you and in your captivity refuses to leave you stuck there, 
but instead sends his son who is serving you to the point of death on a cross, taking on your cost and your burden of captivity so you can be free, when you have significance from that place, no one can take it away, and then I think we can actually finally, like James, learn to live as slaves of all. (laughs) Because without our significance coming from him, man, that word all is really hard. It's really hard to serve all like a slave. Who would it be difficult for you to serve? What conditions is it hard for you to serve under? What are the excuses that come up for you as to why perhaps you're not serving in the ways that you could? Who are the people that God has already put in your life that you're just looking past instead of serving? God is saying, if you want to be great, if you want to be significant, then become a slave of all. Ruth Harms Calkin wrote this prayer in her book, entitled, Tell Me Again, Lord, I Forget. (laughs) And it says this. It's entitled, I Wonder. You know, Lord, you know, Lord, how I serve. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. And there are lots of folks running around in this world just like that. Will we serve them? Will we serve like that? When we find our real significance in having been ransomed by the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, then you'll know you matter. And you'll realize that so does every other person that God puts in your path. Where can you serve as Jesus has served you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you you see us You see us right where we are as we are. You see us in our captivity, our longing for significance that is often unfulfilled and leaves us driving, striving forward. Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave us stuck there, but instead, through your incredible grace and mercy, revealed on the cross, you show us the ransom. Jesus' life to set us free to give us significance, to help us realize that we are loved, we are cherished, we are valued, and that's what gives us our significance. Lord, help us stand more firmly on that so that we would be people who will serve as slaves of all the way Jesus served us. Give us eyes to see who we can serve, how we can serve. May we be a people that serves with the love of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.